Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Julie Nelson, Professor of Economics at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Judy talks to us about the importance of ecology in maintaining a sustainable economy of the future and why it's necessary to include it in economics textbooks today, as well as the continued inequality in gender roles, perceptions and incomes. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Julie Nelson. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Economists have gone a long way from that sort of definition of objectivity and tend to think of uh, objectivity and rigor as being guaranteed purely by mass which is a really silly point of view if you think about it from a, you know, any broader perspective. Math gives you internal consistency. It does not give you uh, objectivity and reliability. Yeah, I know there's still a, a very long way to go to, uh, to uh, be thinking about uh, gender in an in a equitable and intelligent way. I'm, I'm waiting for the article to be written that says, we really need to get pay CEOs badly, because that's the way you make sure that, that you only get the CEOs that have the interest of the company at heart. Uh, you don't see that. You don't see that because somehow money has gotten as- associated with self-interest and caring is supposed to live on air. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Julie Nelson join me today. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Julie Nelson is Professor of Economics at University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Senior Research Fellow at Global Development and Environment Institute, Tufts University, also in the United States of America. Julie's research areas include feminist economics, ecological economics, the philosophy and methodology of economics, ethics and economics, the teaching of economics, and the empirical study of individual and household behavior. Professor Nelson has also served as a research economist at the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and a visiting associate professor at Harvard University, amongst others. Julie is the author of Economics for Humans and author, co-author or co-editor of several other books, including Beyond Economic Man, Feminist Theory and Economics. She has also authored numerous articles in journals ranging from Econometrica, the American Economic Review and the Journal of Political Economy. Professor Nelson earned a BA degree in economics from St. Olaf College and an MA and PhD in economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, USA. Julie, along with Mark Meyer, runs the website introducingeconomics.org. Julie, so a very broad snapshot there on your introduction. Uh, And I suppose it captures the essence of what your approach to economic thinking is. And Correct me if I'm wrong by trying to summarize it in a couple of words, but it's to do with your traditional views of economics along with ethics and the role of women in economic theory or the economy. Well, that's one, one way to look at it. <laughs> as you, uh, as the introduction says, I, I, I go into economics from a, a number of different angles, uh, definition, methodology, uses of it, uh, feminist, ecological points of view. 
and uh, straight old mathematical methodology aspects that are, are badly used. And when you say badly used, what do you mean? Is it that we adopted them from the discipline of physics and we tend to treat them in order to suit the, meta, the theories that exist? Well, actually, the, the case that was coming to mind was much more um, uh, every day than that. But yes, I mean, there's a whole critique of economics as, as you know, aspiring to be pseudophysicists and in the process not doing a very, job, a very good job of actually investigating uh, social reality. Um, the one I was thinking when I said that, because I was just writing again about it recently, is um, some behavioral economics research on differences in preferences by gender. And they are just the, some of the most fundamental mistakes that you could make in statistical inference and mistakes you could make in the ethics of reporting and not necessarily conscious ones, um, but lots of biases have slipped into that, that literature, including using fanciful statistical tests. <laughs> and do you think that's a, a discredit to the discipline of economics and that obviously anything with a bias in there does that? Oh yeah. I think if we want to aspire to be scientific, we want to be aspire to coming up with knowledge that is relevant to the real world and that checks out when looked at by other people. Uh, economists have gone a long way from that sort of definition of objectivity and tend to think of uh, objectivity and rigor as being guaranteed purely by math, which is a really silly point of view if you think about it from a, you know, any broader perspective. Math gives you internal consistency. It does not give you uh, objectivity and reliability. Especially when math can pick up some of the qualitative aspects of human behavior that perhaps may not be quantified. Well, that's true as well. Yeah, if you if you only look at the things that can be quantified, you miss a, a great deal of human behavior. Um, but even if you're looking at things that can be quantified, if you don't remember you know, that your own context is influencing your decisions, you can still end up with biased uh, results. With the ecological economics, how does that fit in in terms – because – and two recent podcast episodes that I had with Herbert Gintis and Jason Shogren, they emphasized the importance of ecology. And where, where do you come from in terms of that angle? Well, just, you know, as a, as a human being, I've become a lot more worried about things like climate change, species extinction, you know, waste buildups, uh, etc. I only started working in ecological economics relatively recently compared to how long I've been working in feminist economics. But the thing that struck me right off the bat when I turned to look at it was that the natural environment and women have been treated very similarly in traditional economics. That is both women's traditional labor in rearing children, taking care of the home and the environment's, you know, services of taking care of waste and, you know, giving us resources and all of that. Um, have been utterly taken for granted. I mean, what's in a what's in a neoclassical production function? There's capital and labor. You know, there's no natural resources. There's no energy. Uh, there's no thought about where the the labor comes from. In economics, people just kind of spring up ready to work, and you know, when they retire, they also disappear off the screen. So, take, taking care of the ill, the children, all of the resources are, are just simply not in there. So, it's a, a fairly similar critique, really, between feminist and eco- ecological. Would land be considered part of this production function? Yeah. I mean, land land was a big deal to the classical economists, but it has kind of fallen out of, of a lot of consideration in more recent uh, development. And, like, I mean, classical economics, really, it just it, it, production Y is equal to a function of, you know, F of uh, K and L, capital and labor. 
and that's the, the production function. When I studied undergrad economics, and even postgrad, and even to this day, when it, you have your textbooks, the only time that the ecological side of things comes into play is when you're looking at public goods or negative externalities. And it doesn't necessarily go as deep into explaining how this is quite impactful on our overall economy and how it could change human behavior because there's a huge absence there. Oh, there's a huge absence. I uh, worked on writing some introductory textbooks, uh, microeconomics in context and macroeconomics in context. And uh, one of the, it, they teach a lot of the usual stuff, but they teach the usual stuff as models and then broaden out to address problems in the world more adequately. And one of the things I realized was key was adding a fourth economic activity to what are the standard three. Most economics textbooks tell you there are three basic economic activities, production, distribution, and consumption. We added one at the beginning, and what we called it very neutrally, resource maintenance. That is, how are you ever going to produce anything if you don't have the resources, if you haven't taken care of them and sustained them uh, in a way that they'll be productive in the future? When you add that in Chapter 1, then you can start thinking about uh, resources and ecology and other kinds of assets right off the bat. You don't have to put them off to, to Chapter 18 or you know a footnote somewhere. Exactly. And you have, for example, I might be a glutton for some historical or geog- nat- the natural geography channel or something like that, whereby you'd look at some tribes that are quite ancient, but they still have brought along with them the traditions that makes them who they are and they are so in tune with the land that they cultivate the land and they respect the land and they have to move on without trying to exhaust it like the way capitalists do and we have to have that as you mentioned resource maintenance in order for their economy to be extended into the next generation and beyond and that essentially what it is is just creating that economy that is going to be effective for the most basic of means, if you consider, say, a hierarchy in terms of how you should live. Right. Well, you're hearkening back to a historical image. It's interesting because I recently wrote uh, an article along similar lines, which is um, pr- from the feminist economic side, there's been a lot of work on care and caring labor um, to the point where I think it's gotten a little bit too closely associated just with women, you know, like men produce and women care, which I don't agree with. But that attitude of care, that attitude of, of paying attention and nurturing is in the uh, historical image of husbandry. Uh, we still you know, hear the term animal husbandry around. But if you think of the, uh, you know, the medieval you know, husbandman, someone who you know, knew their dog and their horse and their flock you know, or, or herdsmen on the Serengeti, they know their landscape. They know what the weather's you know, going to be doing. They have to. And so someone who's you know, attuned you know, attuned to the natural world, attuned to the needs going on around them as they're involved in productive activity. Wouldn't, uh, you know, husbandman rather than economic man lead to a very different image? And, you know, in this case, it's got kind of a masculine connotation, but an image of men in economics who are also uh, caring and attentive to the world. And also women. Women could be husbandmen, but this particular uh, gender riff I was on was about uh, reclaiming care uh, with a somewhat more masculine image. Who do we blame for this? Because it always obviously has to stem from somewhere. Is it John Stuart Mill who came up with the term rational man or economic man? Because economics essentially was in its infancy in terms of bringing it to the masses as an academic discipline. 
has branched on beyond that. And we end up having to criticize the likes of the males who had dominated essentially the discipline. And, you know, when I say dominated, it has really been dominated by men, especially at the beginning. And as a result, we end up with these male connotations, really. Well, I mean, it has been and still is quite mm-hmm. male dominated, although less so now than earlier. The idea of blame, though, um, it's probably too harsh of a word, is. really. Yeah. I think in terms of the development, I think we can think of um, kind of good ideals gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. OK, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be, you know, scientific and precise, but it really goes bad if you've got a very strange idea of what, say, scientific objectivity is, which I already spoke about. Or you feel that that science has to look a certain way. You mentioned John Stuart Mill. He had a very influential essay back in 1836 that that was really the creation of the uh, a root of the economic man image. And uh, he was enthralled with geometry, and he thought, you know, geometry was really cool. You know, could we could we develop an economics that um, is scientific in the same sense as geometry? Well, I mean, geometry is really cool, but I think it's pretty stupid to try to model economics after it. I mean, John Stuart Mill also said a lot of intelligent things. And in that essay, he said no one would be so silly as to try to address an economic problem without looking at its social social and ethical and physical and political dimensions. But later economists didn't remember those cautions of Mill's and just kind of ran with the uh, math aspect of it. And so this whole idea of economic man that you obviously mentioned in your recent article that you refer to on husbandry, a feminist reclamation of masculine responsibility for care. You mentioned that a good husband man in contrast to economic man would live a fuller life acting responsibly and responsibly. And that's the image, as you said, should be portrayed possibly at the beginning of an economics textbook. Yeah. How do we live, you know, on this earth in ways that allow us to, you know, produce for ourselves, produce for society and, you know, protect future generations. It doesn't seem to be no. you know, aiming too high <laughs> on an ethical perspective for me. Um, instead, what we get in the introductory textbooks is you know, a pretty strong message, even an, an indoctrination, that it's um, not only okay but expected to act in self-interested ways in your economic dealings. That has, I think, really uh, polluted and poisoned a lot of uh, economic thinking and you know, the the way uh, CEOs in the U.S. are now, you know, uh, increasing their incomes wildly at the expense of, uh, you know, no increases in incomes for workers. And you know, all the productivity gains have been going to the top in the U.S. Uh, it's nuts. And our current political situation in the U.S. is, is finally you know, showing the backlash to that among people who are uh, know they're being had. They're not they're not terribly clear on the concept of, of who is causing the problems, but they, they know that something's going very wrong. Richard Work, you also refer to feminist economics. Just to clarify, what is feminist economics and how does it differ to the typical branch of economics that we're all familiar with? Well, there's lots of different kinds of feminist economics, I should say. We had to uh, define at one point in a book I was writing and we said um, uh, research into you know the condition of women or feminist perspectives on you know economic methodology that, that has a, a liberatory bent. That was badly rephrased, but but something along that line. There are some people who are feminist economists who do very straight econometric studies of wage gaps, you know, for example. There's quite a lot of feminist economists working in the area of development economics, uh, probably the most progress in terms of getting women's issues uh, noticed has been in development economics. 
there's women working macro or feminist economists. Yeah. Some feminist economists are men, by the way. It's not an all women field. Gary Becker, I suppose, being the most notable, I think. Well, I don't think he would put himself. Actually, Marcia Sen, I would say, would be the most uh, notable. Gary Brecker uh, looked at women but did not have um, the liberatory bent that we're talking about. A lot of his models kind of ex- you know, explain and excuse uh, uh, gender roles. Uh, Amartya Sen has done some wonderful work on gender, on you know, about the missing women, uh, cooperative conflict models of household behavior. Very early supporter of the Journal of Feminist Economics and, and our efforts. So I would say he's the, the leading male. And a number of brave men come to the, the annual conferences and participate in the, uh, the sessions. My own work in feminist economics has been heavily on the, the methodology and ethics aspects, not so much on the, the labor markets or, or development issues. But it's, it's a pretty pretty broad umbrella. I'm quite aghast at the fact that this is in existence in today's, you know, the, the world we live in today. When I hear the word feminism, I think of the feminist movement, even going back to the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. But to have this coming on and not fulfilling the roles and recognizing the role of women. And one of the most current debate, and I think it's worldwide, is the wage gap between the football players, the U.S. football players, male and female. And even though the females have more winning trophies than the males. Yeah. And make about 40 percent as much. Yeah, that's- I, I, I just don't I don't get it, really, to be honest, because it's not as if we're two species. I think you might have put it like that before. Right. Yeah, I know there's still a, a very long way to go to uh, to uh, be thinking about uh, gender in a in a equitable and intelligent way. And why is that? Is it that why would that be the case, do you think? I know you mightn't be able to put your finger on it, but is it because we have I don't know if it's male dominated world or am I being naive? Well, we do have a, a male-dominated world, but it, it goes deeper than that. I mean, you can find women espousing what I think of as quite you know, anti-feminist uh, positions or you know, views. There are some you know, women as well as men that believe, you know, for example, that we, we are pretty much two species. Uh, you know, John Gray's book, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Some people have really swallowed that. And there's been some recent uh, neuroscience research, which I've seen nicknamed neurosexism. Uh, that is that you know the idea that male and female brains are you know utterly different and, and hormones determine everything. You know, no doubt there is some importance there from uh, from genes and hormones, but when you look at human behavior, it really is mostly human behavior, not two different species. The the recent work I was looking at in behavioral economics was on risk preference, and you you see the statement all over that that uh, uh, women are more risk averse than men. I think a lot of people, when they see that kind of thing, they think, okay, men, you know, act one way, women act another. That's not at all what that empirical research means. Um, what it means is that the male average is slightly different from the female average. One of the meta-analyses I did that came out to about a tenth of a standard deviation difference in the mean. So there's humongous overlap between uh, men and women. Uh, men and women vary a lot among them. Men vary among themselves. Women vary among themselves. And the overlap is is huge. You can't make a a judgment about any individual's uh, behavior uh, just from looking at their sex. But yet for reasons of maintaining established power, as well as for reasons that it just makes thinking a whole lot easier, makes society a whole lot clearer, uh, a lot of people want to continue to believe in these very rigid roles and and categorizations. And the similarities that you just highlighted there, those distributions of men and women in risk-taking are extremely similar, but 
again, you're going to have different research, like Terence Odeans, who found this to the contrary, when he's in his paper, Boys Will Be Boys, and found men to be more susceptible to taking on risks. So this was the one where they did more stock market trades? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, that that's one thing to ask, you know, when you find something like that, is is it about something that's inherent in men or women, or is it also about uh, uh, cultural and social context? Yeah. For example, it's been noticed that men and women get very, can get very different financial advice. Financial advice directed towards women was historically uh, in what's been called the, the, the widows and orphans mode. That is that you know women are assumed to just want this you know kind of conservative investing you know preserve the 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 legacy left by their late husband was the the traditional goal. So very different kinds of advice going on there, and people have very you know different amounts of time to devote to things like stock market trading. Uh, when I read that article, I had, I had a little picture of it. You know the guy in his study doing the stock market trades while while the woman's doing the groceries and picking up the kids. <laughs> Both of them after a long day of work. <laughs> And the decision making of the females in the groceries and the supermarket. <laughs> like, for example, you just have to walk down the street and there's more clothing shops dedicated to women than there would be for men. And I think it's possibly the fact that men may not want to go into a shop and shop like that's what I see anyway in terms of uh, clothing. I don't know if you had noticed that in, in, in cities and shopping malls. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I, if if anybody posts me saying there's no differences between men and women, they'd be way off base because, you know, clearly we, you know, there are some um, differences in physiology and behavior that that come on. But those, what, what I, the point I'm trying to make is those differences get very much exaggerated, and we tend to forget all of the other factors that can go into that. You know, if it's, if you think that women do more clothes shopping just because they they you know like clothing shopping, think about um, I don't know if you've heard you know Trump's re- recent statements and things about women. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis still on women to try to look good, right? That seems to be the only thing that, that Trump judges women about. <laughs> yeah, do they look good or do they, do they not look good? You know, if you were under daily pressure uh, to look good, you would probably shop for clothing more. And so it's almost like a culture that's being built up and, and perceptions. Oh, yeah. that's what I'm saying. And it's not nothing to do with individual. Well, it's obviously an individual thing, but it's not nothing to do with gender differences is just whatever culture. So if a, if a person is put into a culture whereby you're encouraged to trade a lot more based on your peers or your supervisors, male or female, they'll tend to do that. Yeah. yeah. This was actually one of the things that I think is you know, the, the exaggeration of, of stereotypes about risk is obviously can have some negative consequences for women. I mean, some of the people who've written about this have said, you know, implied pretty much, well, maybe this is why women don't make as much as men. They just aren't willing to take risks. Okay, so that's the use of a stereotype to explain the, the pay gap. What might be even more dangerous, I think, is the way that that uh, so-called research reinforces the stereotype and reinforces the idea that taking risks is manly. Okay, so you, you get this culture that says, you know, if you're going to prove you're a man, you got to take a lot of risks. And then you go to, you know, Wall Street or someplace that's very male dominated. And what are you going to get? <laughs> you know, you're going to get it's going to be quite skewed. It can be quite skewed. Um, so I don't think, you know, there's talk about, you know, getting more women on Wall Street, getting more women at executive boards. I think that could make a change. But the change is, would not so much come about by the fact that women would bring, you know, greater caution to those areas as they would just start breaking up a locker room atmosphere. 
Okay, if we if we can get that atmosphere from being this, you know, male rivalry, I've got to show you my, you know, manliness by taking these risks and just turn it into a, you know, a human endeavor. This is about, you know, running a company and preserving our clients' assets. You might get some very different behaviors coming out of that. And does it annoy you when people might say we have, should have a woman president or we should have more females making decisions in in the economy or in the central banks, et cetera? Um, no, it doesn't bother me at all as a general thing. Uh, it only bothers me if, if they say, well, and this will bring a, you know, a, a gentler, more caring aspect uh, to these behaviors. Um, that bothers me because it buys into this idea that, you know, men have no choice but to be, you know, self-interested and competitive and women are just by nature, you know, more kind and, and gentle. You know, I think that we can all use more uh, assertiveness at some times and we can all use, you know, more kindness at some times. The, it's up to men and women to, to figure out the right balances in all the situations through uh, all of their activities. And a lot of, the, as you mentioned, their activities, a lot of women who are, are we could say, stay-at-home moms, and we, there's obviously fathers out there as well that do, are doing the same, but their productivity, if you want to say it, is absent from the general levels of GDP that are measured in the economy. And hence, this is what you might refer to as the missing women. Yeah, I mean, this has been a, an issue that's been, been known about and talked about for a long time with very few people actually doing anything about it. I think it was Paul Samuelson who said, you know, if a, if a man marries his housekeeper, GDP goes down. Um, I mean, that notion has been around for a long time. Marilyn Waring, an Australian um, uh, feminist, wrote a book called If Women, in some countries it was called If Women Counted, it had another name somewhere else, all about uh, the fact that, that women's traditional labor is not counted in GDP. I think that's a, a very valid point. I think it could influence some policy issues if we took that into account. I don't think taking it into account would automatically change society. But if we, you know, again, are working towards a more equitable society, if we want to really know how our economies are doing, we should pay attention to that that uh, tremendous amount of work that goes on that's currently not counted. Julie, in your book, Economics for Humans, I'm sure we touched on some elements of it. Could you synopsize that book? for us? Uh, what it was trying to get at was this, this division that we've made between uh, economics and care, or economics and ethics. The idea that the uh, economic world is you know, competitive, profit-driven, uh, this sort of thing. And then there's this other world that's more feminine and caring somewhere else. It turns out that uh, economists are to, uh, to be credited, blamed, <laughs> Anyway, we're starting a lot of myths about how the economy works, even in the U.S., which you know may be the, the, the pinnacle of business thinking or profit-oriented thinking here. It's not required uh, that businesses only look at making a profit. Uh, that was invented by economists. That's not in the, in the law at all, even though it's widely believed to be. And in fact, companies that uh, last for a long time are often companies that have broader interests. They look towards the future. They try to be a good place to work. They try to be you know, good for their communities. Uh, they come up with useful products. They look, look towards innovation. A lot of other interests that, that you know, do not necessarily feed into short-term profits. On the other side, the whole care aspect has been thought of as not so economic. So we don't even count, like you said, uh, the work of homemakers in GDP. We also have a tendency to radically underpay a lot of people involved in, in caring professions, uh, nurses, aides, elementary school teachers, uh, these kinds of, of things. In fact, there's a couple of scholarly articles out recently 
that said, if you, if you want to get the best, the highest quality nurses, both use nurses, the example, you should pay nursing badly. And their rationale was that's the way you get the true altruists in the job. They seem to have forgotten that nurses and their kids need to eat. Okay, it's, it's a rather silly argument. I'm, I'm waiting for the article to be written that says we really need to get pay CEOs badly because that's the way you make sure that, that you only get the CEOs that have the interest of the company at heart. Uh, you don't see that. No. You don't see that because somehow money has gotten aso- associated with self-interest and caring is supposed to live on air. And uh, the point of economics for humans was that you know caring needs resources and economics needs ethics. Uh, we are in very bad shape as a society if we let our caring infrastructure go away or if we follow these you know, greedy, self-interested, opportunistic modes of business life. A thought just came to mind there. I suppose I could be talking just what I see your experience here in Ireland, and I'm sure it's the same in every other developed country. But there are a lot of charities and charitable organizations that are doing fantastic work but are not being funded by the government. And I think it's almost, I don't know whether I'm a conspiracist, but if the government is aware that if people are altruistic by nature or are somewhat charitable, they will end up funding the needs of, say, a a hospice for one particular area and it saves the government from funding that from their own resources. Is that true? Is that like a conflict between capitalist or capitalism and the caretaking economy? And is there a big divide there? Because there's always problems with the health system or with anything associated with uh, charitable giving when it comes to health. Well, there is the the case in the U.S. It's things like mental health budgets keep on getting you know cut back and cut back, you know, until some you know crazy pulls out a gun and kills a bunch of people, and then there's a bunch of demands saying you know, oh, why did the mental health system not you know not deal with this person earlier? If you look back at history, it's because you kept on chopping away at their budget. So, yeah, there's a lot of very short-sighted decisions that go on. I mean, that said, in in the U.S., we have this other bizarre case of – I can't really call it the healthcare system. It's it's, the the medical system, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical device makers. There's a whole lot of of money being made in health-related things right now in ways that, you know, are not doing a lot of service to, to public health. I mean, there's poor parents who can't afford vaccines at the same time that we've got, you know, bizarre, bizarrely, you know, specialized but lucrative uh, drug stuff uh, going on. Anyway, I mean, healthcare is a big ball of wax, but certainly the idea that, well, particularly actually, an, another strange thing in the U.S. healthcare system uh, that I knew from personally from family experience was the uh, uh, government and insurance companies are are much more eager to pay for medical devices and drugs and hospital stays than they are to pay for, say, home housekeeping care or visiting nurses or that kind of thing. The actual hands-on care, which is done mostly by women and immigrants in the U.S., is utterly starved of, of resources, whereas the, the more industrial aspects get better funded. The beggars believe that with the bailout that we've experienced, pretty much socialize all of those private losses that were made by banks and bondholders. And we could have corrected our own healthcare system if we had pumped in a fraction of that money over the, the boom that we had experienced up to 2007. It's it's crazy. Like, and now, now all these other, yeah. it continues to be affected badly. And they're the unintended consequences of the this type of capitalist society that we we live in, be it a good, a, a better alternative to what's out there already. 
Well, I think that you have to notice that there's you know, lots of different varieties of, of capitalism. And what we're increasingly getting in the U.S., and I, I think you're getting you know, in, the, in Ireland and other areas as well, is, is a, a crony capitalism in which you know, fairly uh, you know, opportunistic and unethical business leaders are coming to the fore, you know, paying themselves enormous salaries. And then there's a you know, revolving door between them and their supposed government regulators. I mean, that's why we got the bailouts, et cetera, in the U.S. If you look at, you know, it's the Goldman Sachs executives becoming the government executives and, and, and vice versa. Uh, same, same group of people running both, both shows and uh, using government to serve the, the interests of the banks uh, over the people. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dire straits, but it, it wasn't always this way. Some, some people, some of my friends on the left look at this and say it's, you know, it's just the natural outcome of, of capitalism. I, Personally, I don't, don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, we did not have this kind of wide CEO worker disparity. Uh, we did not have this wild west, uh, financial system. Uh, even in the U.S., if you go back, you know, 40, 50 years, it was a very different kind of capitalism then. If you look at, um, capitalism in the, in the Nordic countries or in Japan or, you know, a number of other places, it's, it's very different depending on, uh, on the historical, cultural context. Can I ask you, actually, uh, I had another question in mind, but I'll ask it in a while, and I don't know whether you, um, this is any way relevant, but correct me if I'm wrong, is prostitution feature in GDP? I'm not sure. I, I know drug trafficking or drugs drug, drugs does take, uh, take, is taken into consideration. In the U.S., prostitution is legal in Nevada, so I would guess that at least there it would figure into you know, state-level measures of production you know it's a, a regulated industry other you know to the extent it is illegal uh, no it does not a, did not appear in the official statistics julie in some of the modules that you lecture in your university do you find it somewhat difficult to or do you have free reign over the, uh, the material that you, you teach or do you have to stick within a certain curriculum and if so is there any one theory that you go through that you wholeheartedly dislike, but have to get through it in order to meet the standards that are required. I teach uh, different courses. As I said, I, I helped work, develop some introductory um, textbooks, and I've taught from both of those, both intro uh, micro and, and intro macro. And there, there are some theories that I, you know, I don't think are as important as other economists think, but you're kind of required to teach them in those introductory level courses so that students, you know, have the same background when they go on to other courses. And I don't necessarily mind teaching them as long as I can teach them as models. Most textbooks say, you know, this is the way the world works. I say, this is the way some economists have thought about describing <laughs> how the world works. And then we can compare that to other theories and to actually, you know, what's going on in the world. So I won't say that there's any that, you know, if you can teach them as models and students to understand the assumptions being made, and the uh, uses and abuses of them as models, it's much easier to teach things that seem kind of silly. You know, you might you might wonder why you're spending all the time on them. Um, I also teach a gender and economics class where one of the models that I find oddest, but I, I didn't cover it because I thought it was you know so out of date that it wasn't necessarily necessary to cover. But my students started finding it on their own and, and parroting it in research papers was what was called a human capital explanation for why women make less than men. And it was an explanation that was dreamed up in the um, 
I think pretty much the 60s, maybe the early 70s, that said that, well, well, women make less than men because they know they're not going to be working for as long. So they aren't as motivated to invest in education. And if you're not, don't invest as much in education, you make less. So that's the theory. Unfortunately, I mean, these days, women's college enrollment is higher than men's. And yet students will still find that theory if I don't discuss it in class and say, well, women, you know, don't make as much as men because they don't invest in education. <laughs> Even though the statistics are, are staring them in the face otherwise. And in those, and some of the theories that you do teach, um, do you have an example of one uh, that you might like to briefly enlighten us with? Um, that, that relates to maybe uh, the, the aspects of caretaking or ethics or ecology. I'd be just interested to see how you might be able to relate um, your th- your thinking with some of the theories that have existed in the past, or is there something a, a theory that you yourself have built up to explain behaviors? I'm trying to think. I mean, one example of a way you can use something that looks very much like an old theory to discuss an ecological point is to talk about um, uh, Pagovian taxes. That is, taxes that actually move markets towards becoming more efficient. The usual story is that taxes make markets less efficient because they cause deadweight loss. But if you have something like carbon that's being used, you know, way too much, releasing way too much carbon in the atmosphere, if we're able to tax that, not only does the government government get revenue, but the economy actually becomes more efficient because you're you're, you're pricing the, the carbon at its true cost rather than a ridiculously low cost. And you can graph that. I, I made up a little diagram for that. We include in, included in some educational materials I, I did. Same, you know, classic uh, sorts of, of diagrams, but with a new spin. Now it's about how we get welfare gains from taxation, that kind of taxation rather than welfare loss. And those welfare gains are based on the the taxes that the polluter pays for the carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah, because because when when you start charging people more for something that is causing a negative externality, I mean, you get the revenues from the taxes, and it also it motivates them to find other alternatives. So they they do less of that activity. And we can see that today, I suppose, in the car manufacturing industry with uh, Tesla coming out with the battery cars or the electric vehicles and also the transition with other car manufacturers that are heading that way. Whether it's going to be successful or not, but I'm sure it will be. We'll end up moving away from the petrol age to that battery age and all those carbon. I don't know whether it's successful or not because of the lobbyists that are out there to try to reduce the carbon emission taxes through the Kyoto Agreement. I don't think the U.S. are part of that Kyoto Agreement. I'm not sure. But we are heading in the right direction, aren't we? We will be going in the right direction sooner or later, whether we want to or not, <laughs> because these things are really happening. The real, the real issue now is speed. The U.S. has been dragging its feet uh, compared to a lot of Europe in coming up with you know practical solutions, and also dragging its feet in, in terms of the development of of new technologies, which is a real mistake in terms of you know, the long term outlet uh, prospects for the economy. Economists have have pretty much known for a long time that we need something like a carbon tax to discourage negative externality producing energy sources and encourage the development of new ones. It's, it's really more of a political issue uh, that they have not uh, come into existence. And there is disagreement on, on economists about the, the size of those. I tend to believe that we, we need, really need some dramatic action and we need it very soon. I mean, this is what the science is, is telling us. And uh, yet we're, we're not really moving on that uh, nearly nearly as fast as we could. And do you have any personal views on nuclear as an alternative? 
it looked kind of, kind of you know, it, it sort of a good, good looking in the short run sort of alternative because it, it you know does not have the kind of same carbon emissions. Again, I think when you start talking about climate change, you start really thinking more in, in generational terms, you know, in hundreds of years rather than, than decades. Uh, and I think nuclear doesn't look so good uh, when you look at it that way. We really have not solved any of the, the waste uh, storage problems. And, you know, if we think carbon dioxide is bad, you know, what nuclear waste badly stored could be doing down the line, you know, looks really awful, too. Judy, can we can I take you in a slightly different direction, oh. but still close to heart? It's based on your blog, introducingeconomics.org. Uh-huh. Why did you set this up? Uh, well, Mark Meyer and I um, both had an interest in, in economic education. I'd worked on these university textbooks. Uh, Mark had been involved in some discussions about, about high school uh, and kindergarten through 12th grade, but particularly high school level economics education. And high school education tends to be even more uh, narrow-minded and simplistic than introductory college level education. And so we put together a, a book uh, published by Amy Sharp called Introducing Economics and this website, which unfortunately we, we have not been able to update very much recently. But to give you know, teachers, high school teachers, uh, the idea that there are other uh, resources out there. Uh, we looked at textbooks, for example, that, that uh, one of the textbooks I remember said that the reason we have air pollution is that nobody's created a, the right kind of market for air which is just kind of a, a mind-numbingly free market way of, of phrasing uh, the issue and what its solution could be. And so we, yeah, we, we just created a, a book with some a chapter and kind of some historical commentary about how things came to be this way, and then mirroring chapter by chapter what, what you tend to see in some of these materials. You know, what are some alternative views on the role of the corporation? What are some alternative views on consumerism, um, con- consumption in the environment, uh, these sorts of things that, that – High school teachers generally do, will not find in the materials that they get. Is that again because the their hands are essentially tied, or would it be a good idea? Like I don't I don't know what the system is like in the U.S. Would there be a freedom to maybe do project work that the student can actually take on themselves and branch out into an area that they may be interested in? And this is where something like your website, introducing economics.org would give some kind of insights and some information as to how you might be able to take on some of this research. Yeah. Well, the, the, the website and book were really more geared towards the, the teachers. Most of the teachers will not have studied a whole lot of economics themselves. So they're not, might not be sure what kind of resources are, are out there. At the high school level, it's also quite tricky. Um, Mark and I also wrote a couple of articles about the high school standards of movement. There has been increasingly increasing demands in the U.S. to to standardize education and you know make sure that students are learning you know a certain list of things. And the people who have been working on that for economics you know, tend to have quite conventional views. People in the state legislatures that put these things together tend to have quite conventional views. So it's a it's a little different picture at the high school level than it is at the university level. But to the extent that teachers do have some, you know, individual teachers have some discretion in what they teach, we hope that that website will be helpful. And we hope our other articles about the standards testing or you know, standards movement might help wake people up to to what we would you know, really want to have in those standards, have in those standards if they are going to exist. I think it's important to have that cross-discipline, or not cross-disciplinary, but it's important to have the collaboration of different viewpoints in order to move away from that traditional setting and to open ourselves up to the aspects of ethics and economics, which is 
purely a, a very important element as we've seen now in the recent past why we should have it and i wholeheartedly agree with the ecological side of things you know again something that i hadn't really considered until i spoke with some previous guests and yourself as well and emphasizing this is to be extremely vitally important for earth for people to live on um can i ask you a number of quick fire questions julie okay i'd love to know what books you would recommend or what you're currently reading or the latest book you've read? So, what's an interesting one I've read lately? Um, one I was just um, citing recently, so uh, about the, uh, the financial crisis, which has come up a couple times in our discussion, is uh, Econed by Eve Smith. That's a, a good one about the uh, – I can't remember the subtitle offhand. It's something about how – how opportunism has corrupted U.S. capitalism, something along that line. I, the subtitle is much, much catchier than that. Title I would have thought of. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice title, isn't it? Econ. Yeah. Do you have any internet resource that you use? Oh, I also have inter- another, another book that I, that I like and would recommend in terms of the, the myths that economists have created about business behavior is a book by a uh, legal scholar named Lynn, Lynn Stout called The Shareholder Value Myth. Talks about why profit maximization is a myth and a little bit about the role of the economist in creating it. Yeah, that, that's true, isn't it? That is a big myth, yep. the role of profit maximization. And then again, that's coming from the maximization of economics that, have been, that has been introduced. Yes, exactly. Do you have any internet resource that you'd like to share with us that you actually use? Oh, I use a, a, a variety and I can't really point to one. I hope it's some, I, I just recently started uh, putting together my own blog, but it's under construction now. If you, if you ask me a few months from now, I'd, <laughs> I'd mention that as a resource. But Do you have a domain for it, Jess? Yeah, it's uh, julianelson.com. Julie A. Nelson, and A is your second name, isn't it? Yeah, and there's Ju- no punctuation or blanks or anything in there, just Julie Ju- A. Nelson. Julie A. Nelson, and this this podcast will be up in the future still, and people can still listen to it, so okay. um, I'm, I'm sure that website will be up and running in a few months' time, and if you're listening to it for the first time, well, why not check it out, julianelson.com. And Julie, I'd love to know if you have any, if you'd like to give us a takeaway before you leave on this work that you've you're doing or the, I suppose, the mentality that you take with you in approaching economics and sharing it with us on the internet, etc. Well, I guess uh, one takeaway is, you know, be careful about what you believe that economists are telling you. Um, another one is that uh, to remember that, you know, wherever we are in our life, whether we're at work in a business or at home, we're bringing our whole selves with us. We don't just bring parts of ourselves uh, so if we want to be an, an ethical person anywhere, uh, we need to do that when we're at work. Julie, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Share with our listeners where they could find you. I am at University of Massachusetts, Boston, Economics Department, julie.nelson at umb.edu. And julianelson.com and it's live and kicking. <laughs> you can find all links to Julie on economicrockstar.com forward slash Julie Nelson. Julie, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star and that's gender neutral, <laughs> as you're well aware. <laughs> it was fun talking with you.
If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. 